Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have uh, seen it fit to come down to us in Christ and record what you've done in him for us in a book. It's outside of us. We can't reason to the gospel from our senses. We can't reason to the gospel from... um, our own hearts, but you've revealed it by your Spirit who searches the deep things of God and has been given to us as well by the work of Christ. We see that from the very beginning in this early history of the church in Acts. Father, would you be with us today as we continue through this first chapter? Would you impress upon us the, the incredible control and um, sovereignty that you have over all things and the incredible responsibility that we have to act, to do, to trust, to grow. All of these things are, are part of your kingship over us and we want to be faithful to that. So would you Do what only you can do by your spirit this morning. Give us hearts that are willing and um, hungry to follow you and love you and display you to a dying world. We pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Last week, we started uh, chapter one of Acts and Luke introduced the sequel to his gospel with uh, with the transition from the earthly ministry of Jesus to the earthly ministry of the Holy Spirit through through the church. Um, Having seen Jesus ascend in victory, the disciples were challenged by the two men in white to to, to stop staring into heaven uh, looking for Jesus. And they're left with the latest commands, the last commands that Jesus gave to them which were what? Chapter 1 of Acts. What were the commands that Jesus had given them? That Jesus had just given them in chapter 1. What did he say to them? Verses 4 and 5, and again in verse 8. Just, just to help you out. What is he Don't Don't leave Jerusalem. They'd been going out, coming back, that kind of thing. So he said, don't leave Jerusalem. Why? Because you will be baptized you, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence because I learned it in Old King James and then what did he say verse 8 you will receive power from the Holy Spirit and the gospel is going to spread you will receive power from the Holy Spirit you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth we talked last week about how that was a massive nod to uh, a show of fulfillment of the prophecies that we saw in Isaiah where he talks about the, the, the Spirit being poured out upon um, the people of God and the people of God being the witnesses to the work of God. And so Jesus wasn't just saying that command out of thin air. He was actually pulling from Scripture. He was doing the publishers a favor because the books are related and they can package them together and sell them to us now. The both testaments are related. Here we go. And Woo! there it is. All right. Yes, I welcome. Here at 8:55. I don't need. I don't need excuses. This room is what matters. That's the only thing that matters. All right. Um, so we we've we've seen then he is pulling from the Old Testament because all the law and the prophets testify of him. He spent 40 days giving them. the the hermeneutic of Christ-centered understanding of Scripture. All right. The rest of chapter 1 describes the waiting time. And those are usually the, you know, when when you have movies that are like in threes, you know, the one in the middle is usually the, uh, because it's the waiting time for the real event to happen at the very end. 
you read Lord of the Rings, Two Towers, the most boring book of the series because what's going on? You got them doing this stuff. You have the waiting time here. It's a little different, though, the waiting time um, in Acts. Uh, let's read it. Ch uh, chapter 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David, concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of the Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out amongst us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also known as, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen <clears throat> to take the place in this ministry and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. What is their first action after Jesus' ascension? It's the first thing they do. They pick the, the 12th disciple again. Okay. Devote themselves to prayer. Okay, where? Uh, in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. What is that in response to? Stay, stay in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He said stay in Jerusalem. Oddly enough, they go to Jerusalem. Their first act is one of obedience. Was that an easy thing to go back to Jerusalem? What are the problems of doing this? How does Luke describe their journey back to Jerusalem? What does he say? A Sabbath day's journey. A Sabbath day's journey. That's an odd statement. What does that tell you about how they're still accounting things? very Jewish, isn't it? About a Sabbath day's journey. Uh, the language he uses describes the longest distance one could walk without breaking the Sabbath. Uh, the rabbinic tradition places that at about three quarters of a mile, 2,000 cubits, in case you're really wondering. Why make that point? Who are these guys? Jesus had just ascended. Uh, you're to go to the Gentiles. Jesus for the nations. And they're still calculating things based on rabbinic traditional standards. You can take the boy out of the city, but you can't take the rabbinical law out of the boy. I don't know. How you <laughs> They're still calculating things that way. They walk a Sabbath day's distance. 
um, they traveled to this upper room they had been staying at, uh, and that's, some have argued, well, that was the upper room where they had the Last Supper, or this was Mark's mother's house, or what, I mean, all the kind of, you know, conjecture, we don't know. The upper room was the third floor of a typical Palestinian house. It was oftentimes rented out for uh, students to learn, or for events, or uh, many times just rented out to the poor for them a place to live. And that's kind of what's going on here. They, they're, they're at a, a room that they're renting in Jerusalem to stay. Um, who are we given as being there? Who's there? What, how's the list go? The disciples. Which ones? Do what? Well, how, he, he lists... 11 guys. Who's missing? Judas. Judas. Iscariot's missing, right? We got another Judas in there. It kind of throws the whole thing off. You got to pay attention to the modifiers. Um, this list is identical to the one that Luke gives in his gospel, except two things. One, uh, Andrew and John are switched. Andrew was second in the list in Luke. He's now fourth. And John was fourth. Now he's second. So they did a little swap there. So it's Peter. Uh, John and James are the first three. And, that's an, and, and the other issue is that Judas Iscariot, we've already said it, is missing. Uh, gee, I wonder why. He's dead right now? He's, well, we'll find out. Yeah, we, we, he's dead. Uh, but more importantly, <laughs> what happened? He betrays Jesus. And so he's taken out of the list of the faithful disciples. And Luke puts in Acts, Peter, John, James. And, he, and, he's, and, and it's kind of a grouping there at the front. These are the apostles that he basically, they're the only ones that have individual appearances or, or any kind of narrative about them apart from uh, right here. The rest of the book, if you see an apostle, it's going to be Peter, John, and James. Uh, the others are just not talked about. doesn't mean they weren't doing stuff. In fact, Church tradition, church history, records them doing lots of stuff. Even Matthias, he went on to Australia and started a media complex, you know, thing down there. And they did. But there's a, a lot going on. But the three that he focuses on are Peter, James, and John. So, um, so what's the problem? Who else is there? Who else is here? There's twelve. The, the eleven. Disciples, the inner circle guys. Who else is here? Uh, the women. Mary the, the women. The women. What does that mean? The women. What a name. Family members, wives of the disciples, probably. Uh, there's also was a, there was also a contingent of women, uh, well-to-do women, who would sponsor Jesus' ministry at the time, who traveled with him from Galilee. Uh, so there's probably some of that going on. But, but family members, wives, kids of the... This, I mean, they weren't all celibate. I mean, they, Roman Catholicism wouldn't impose that till like hundreds of years later. So they, they, were, they were married, and they had kids, and they had wives, because that's how you, you know... And so... The, and then the women from Galilee are there. Who else is there? One in particular is named. Mary. Mary. Who? The the mother of Jesus is there. So, uh, and who else? His brothers. Now, this is odd. The last time we saw Mary and the brothers of Jesus, um, they were saying, we don't believe what you're saying. What are you doing? Why are you, why are you acting like, stop doing this, you're going to get yourself in trouble. That, that was the last time we saw them. Here they are, counted with the believers in the upper room uh, anticipating Pentecost. What's the difference? What made the difference? He did what he said he was going to do. And he appeared to them after he had completed it, right? Right. His brothers didn't really become believers until after the resurrection. In fact, Paul records for us in 1 Corinthians 15 that James... And here he's called Judas, but we know him as Jude. He wrote a book. Um, had appearances of the risen Christ 
And during that 40-day window we talked about last week. So two of the brothers, at least, saw him individually. And then, collectively, they saw him all together. They've seen the risen Jesus. Apologetically, <laughs> what does that do? When you have family members who are willing to identify themselves with this sect of Judaism at the time it was called, that is now hunted and, 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 and viewed as blasphemous, calling a man God. And among them are his brothers. We've made this point before about John, the cousin of Jesus, saying he, he who was uh, he, he who's coming was before me, like eternity past, calling him, giving him deity uh, props there. If you know somebody that well, how likely is it that you're going to, I mean, really? That's kind of a, a big deal. And yet we see them all here. The, the um, incidentally, uh, According to Mark, Jesus had four brothers, James, Judas, who we call Jude, Joseph, and Simon. Um, I, I just want to make a, the, the brief uh, good Protestant point here. These were his actual brothers because Joseph and Mary were married. And they had more kids. The, the mystical idea of that Mary somehow remained in this bubble for the rest of her life and never had a, a, a natural relationship with her husband is, is not consistent with what we see in Scripture. Um, she didn't have to have perpetual virginity for the incarnation to be uh, what it was. That's just, that's, again, that's a Gnostic idea, so I just want to put that out there. They were his half-brothers by Joseph. Okay. And if you want to talk to me about that, if you have some questions about that, I'd be more than happy to, to have a lunch on that whole topic. But I just want to make that point. All right. Uh, what are they doing? It's already been said. What are they doing in this upper room? They're what? Praying. Praying. And who told them to do that? Jesus. Did he? He didn't tell them to pray. He told them to stay. Oh, he's Baptist. He taught them to pray, but they're in the upper room. He said, wait, right? Until the Spirit comes, right? He didn't say, go and pray for 40 days until the Spirit comes. Probably about 10, but anyway, give or take. Uh, he didn't say pray. They do this naturally. They do this in response to what they've seen. They do that because he taught them to do it. They're, they're praying. Why? Did he say the Spirit is not going to come unless you spend some time in prayer? It was the natural outflowing of their hearts at the time. Okay, a natural outflowing of the heart. They knew they were in a weird situation, I guess. Kind of unique. Okay, so still uh, uh, recognizing his authority after having been ascended. Uh, you know, th th there's that uh, humbling thing going on there. He didn't command them to pray. He didn't say the Holy Spirit coming is conditioned upon you praying. And yet they did it naturally. And they did it fervently. Now, I, I remember a scene in the Gospels, and I should have looked it up for today, but I, I remember that Jesus is in the garden praying, and there are three, Peter, James, and John, that, that he's praying, and he gets up and goes and checks on them, and what are they doing? They're crashed out under a tree somewhere in the garden. And what does he say? I'll use the old King James, because it's the way I remember it, I think it sounds the coolest. Um, Could you not tarry with me one hour? One hour. Can't you? St this is about to happen. Can't you pray for one hour? And they and he does it like several times. And they're like, and he forget it. I'm just gonna, you know. And he just doesn't wake them up anymore until the soldiers come and take him away. Notice the transformation. They are fervent in prayer for for days on end. 
Some have argued that this also involved uh, them going to synagogue and being and participating in that some of that stuff because they're still kind of a Jewish thing. I don't know. That I agree with that. I, I think I think the, the the text seems to give the scene of them being in that room, praying together fervently, even though they know what's going to happen. They're still praying. Um, praying together was a hallmark of the early church. Here it was done in an anticipation of the promised gift of the Spirit. Where would they have learned to pray like this? Do you remember early in the Gospels, before Jesus began his ministry, before the Spirit came upon him? It says this in Luke 3. John's baptizing. It says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and the voice came from heaven, saying, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. What they're doing is following him. He was in fervent prayer before the Holy Spirit came upon him, and so they, reflecting him, are in fervent prayer before the Holy Spirit comes upon them to begin their ministries. He's reflecting, they're reflecting him. Um, why do this if God is sovereign? Why pray if God is sovereign? What's the point? Okay. So is his sovereignty conditioned upon us fulfilling our duty? No. Jesus prayed. So taking him as an example, he prayed in red, so we really know it's inspired. Um, I think if you pray, I mean, if God is sovereign, then that should push us to pray more. Ah. If God is the only one that can make things happen, if he's ruler of all things, then we should be asking him to make things happen. We should be asking him, like, we should be petitioning to the Lord. Sure. Sure. So, do you believe, and this, this is becoming more and more apparent to me and, and hitting home to me the older I get, but do you believe that God numbers your days? Yes. Yes? Uh, we, I pick something that's quotable from Scripture so you can say yes, because it says... Teach us to number our days. You number our days. You know the number. Okay. It says several times, God numbers our days. Why breathe? <laughs> Why bother? You're not going to die before God takes you anyway. Why bother to breathe? Besides the fact that it's an involuntary action. <laughs> <laughs> and so should prayer. And that's the point. Uh, there is in the Christian life a necessity of constant petition to God to live the Christian life. And that's what we see here. They believe that God is sovereign. They, just see, they have just witnessed and will testify to God fulfilling all of His promises in the Old Testament in Christ, seeing Him ascend, knowing He's King of heaven and earth, and yet they still fervently pray. Um, I think it's helpful to think of prayer like preaching. Uh, Romans 9, big sovereignty chapter. We always hit it. And somebody says, well, you know, free will, free will. Well, read the Romans 9 and we, we hit that. But following Romans 9 is Romans 10. And it's written by the same guy, so, you know, there's no conflict there. Romans 10 says, faith comes by what? Hearing, hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Word of God. How will they hear unless someone is sent? Well, I thought God was sovereign. How will they hear unless it's preached? God ordains the ends, and He ordains the means by which the ends will result. And prayer is no different. It's, it's the same thing. Someone's got to be sent to preach. The, the means of the conversion God ordains is through the preached word, which involves an act of man. However, God ordains the act as well as the response by the unbeliever. It's the same thing in prayer. Prayer is like preaching in that it is a human act also. 
It is a human act that God has ordained and which he delights in because it reflects the dependence of his creatures upon him. And I find it fascinating that in this passage, that's where they start. An act of the human will and humble recognition of who they are before the Creator God. Because the next two things that are addressed in this passage are huge sovereignty things. Huge. And yet it starts with human action in prayer. Yeah? I think it's kind of like, I mean, a big point of Jesus' returning is to restore creation back to its original right. state pre-sin. Right. And so a major component of that is the ability to talk to God and be in the Lord's presence at any given time. It's, it's back to a walk in the garden yeah, idea. Yeah, it's a restoration of Eden when they're praying in the upper room. Right, right. Just now much more reality than it was, you know, sure. 60 days, or 60 days before this, before right. Christ died and was resurrected. Yeah, yeah. Make the world Eden. It starts with communing with God. Yeah, so you have, you have this massive uh, uh, providence in prayer. Did God ordain that they pray in the upper room? Well, sure he did. Did they still do it willingly? Absolutely. <laughs> That'll keep you up at night if you just kind of let it go. So then we have them praying. And then Luke goes to this next section, the providence of place. In verse 15, it starts out with, in those days. And Luke marks the end of his summary of their actions in verse 14. It's going to be several summaries we'll see in Acts. He does these quick rehashes of what's going on. Uh, during this period of waiting and prayer, one essential piece of business had to be addressed. <clears throat> Look at verses 16 and 22. How does Peter describe the Scripture here? How does Peter describe the Scripture here? Okay, in 16 he says, what's the word, what's the word that he uses? Had to be. Had to be. Now, what kind of emphasis and prize does Peter put on the Word of God there? Is it still hot in here? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what, kind of, what kind of authority, what kind of um, statement is that about the Word of God? Peter says, and this is Old Testament. It had to be fulfilled. It, is, it was necessary, the Greek would say. It was necessary that it be fulfilled. Is that, what tense is that? Grammar students. Was necessary, was necessary would be past tense. So he talks about Judas and what he did in the past. It was necessary that he do that, that he betray Christ. Let that hit you. Did somebody hold a gun to Judas's head? <laughs> Other than the technological difficulties they would have had in doing that, what was going on with Judas? Did he go to the priests willingly? He wanted to do what he did. And yet it says... It was necessary. That's a massive statement on sovereignty. Look what he says in verse 22. What, what is it that he attributes to the, the, the reconstituting of the twelve here? How does he describe that? Sure. And that was, we'll get to those qualifications in a second. But what does he say in regards to Scripture? He says a word there. It starts with M, ends with ust. It must be. It is necessary. Again, the tense change. What we're doing will fulfill Scripture. Let another take his place. He points to that, to that, uh, to that Scripture. <coughs> 
Verse 16 uses the past tense, had to be fulfilled. The language has the meaning of necessity. It was necessary. He quotes Psalm 69.25 and sees it as already fulfilled. In verse 22, the language must become is also language of necessity. It is necessary. Their actions, Peter says, were deliberate to fulfill the, the scriptures. And he's pointing to Psalm 109.8, in case you're thumbing through. And this is a view throughout all of Acts. Scripture that has a prophetic emphasis must come to fulfillment. And do we see this in the life of Jesus? I do this that the Scripture will be fulfilled. This must happen so that the Scripture will be fulfilled. That's a very conscious view of the fulfillment of Scripture. You know what else fulfills Scripture? You know what else fulfills the prophetic Old Testament? Light to the Gentiles. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all nations, then the end will come. That's prophetic. When we go out from these walls that we like to hang out in, when we go out there and do what we're called to do, we do it so that the, the scriptures must be fulfilled. It's still happening. And Peter recognizes that in this action of, um, of, of, fulfill, of, of reconstituting the twelve. These things didn't stop with Jesus. Uh, as we discussed last week, reaching the nations is a fulfillment of prophecy. That's going to happen because God's word isn't broken. But in the case of Judas, the providence and sovereignty of God is brought down to a much more personal level. I mean, this is a guy they hung out with for three years. He was counted among their friends. He was trusted with money. Uh, he was chosen by Christ to be part of that inner circle after a lot of prayer on Jesus' part. And Jesus knew what he was doing. He knew who he was choosing. Did I not choose all of you and one of you is a devil, he'd say. And he didn't stand out because they didn't, they didn't all go, oh yeah, that's Judas. Right? Jesus would say in, in John chapter 6, He said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. In, in verse 44, He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Um, it, it's a, and then He says this massive statement in, in chapter 6, verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. And then there's this parenthetical statement that John puts in that, in that section. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Why is he saying this stuff? He's giving an account for Judas. Yikes! Does that not hit you? In Judas, we find the most incredible failure in human history. He betrayed the Son of God. He did it willingly, just as God predestined him to do. Just as God predestined him to do, he did it willingly. In Judas, we see two things. You can say all the right things and be, quote, close to Christ and yet be hardened in sin, in sin. And the other thing we see is that even the worst act of treason works toward the fulfillment of God's plan. Even his enemies serve him unwittingly. With Judas, we're faced with a tension between divine sovereignty and human choice. Judas chose to follow Christ, but Christ chose him first. We're told that even when, Judas chose, when Jesus chose Judas, he knew Judas would betray him. So would Peter. Didn't Peter betray him? But it's never given that Christ prayed for Judas like he prayed for Peter. Massive statement on the sovereignty of God. Jesus would say this in Luke 22, For the Son of Man goes it as it has been determined, 
but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. And look at the woe recorded here in the first chapter of Acts. What happens to Judas according to Luke in this chapter? This is a man verse, by the way. This is blood and guts right here. He burst open. Burst open. And his bowels gushed out. You gotta say it southern. His bowels gushed out. What in the world are we seeing here? I thought, didn't he, didn't the gospel say in Matthew that Jesus went out and what? Judas. Judas, yes. Thank you for the correction. That Judas went out and what? Hung himself. So what do we have here? We got bowels gushing out. What is going on? No one took him down and buried him. No one took him down and buried him. Woe to him. That's been the consistent explanation of the, the differences there between Matthew's account of how Judas died and Luke's account here in Acts. Is that uh, either when he hung himself, the rope broke, and it was a big fall. He couldn't even hang himself right, is one of the, one of the arguments. <laughs> the other is that he stayed up there and the natural deterioration of the body got weak and the sun and stuff and stuff happens, yeah. That's why it's a man verse. And so he falls apart hanging from a tree. Many times the physical is a picture of the destruction of the spiritual. And that's such a gruesome, dishonorable death that Judas had. And yet it pales in comparison Woe to the one who betrays. It pales in comparison. And don't you think Peter was thinking that through? There but for the grace of God go I. He had betrayed, but he's here speaking on behalf of the new constituted church. Massive Sovereign statement. Um, all right. Then we see lastly the providence of position in verse 21 through 26. Uh, wouldn't it be fair to say, though, that Peter uh, was feeling a God's, uh, you will betray me? And so he was fulfilling that? Oh, Peter? Yeah, he said, yeah, Peter. But he did it willingly, right? Yeah, but he, just, he was fulfilling what he said. Do. Right, but he did it willingly, right? I mean, he did it out of fear because he was, you know, it was a girl and they're scary. And, <laughs> and it's still sin. He still, he still recognizes his betrayal because you remember the response of Jesus, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times confirming that after he had denied him three times. And he's weeping. You know I love you. You know I love you. There's a repentance there. And, it's, and it also fulfills Scripture when Jesus says, I have prayed for you, and when you return, encourage your brothers. Because they're going to betray me too. They're going to run, strike the shepherd, the sheep will flee. You know, that kind of thing. So that's, again, he's still owning, he's still feeling both the, the gravity of what he did and the gravity of the mercy of Christ on him. Because of Judas. Right? And so then we see the providence of position. Verse 21. What are the qualifications? It's already mentioned one of them. What are the qualifications for this new replacement uh, for Judas? What, what, what do they have to have? Been with them since John. Been with them? They had to witness the entire ministry of Jesus, right? From John forward. What's the second thing? Has to be a man. <laughs> Paul writes about that later. But um, yes, has to be a witness of what? The resurrection, the ascension. That, uh, those are the two qualifications that we see Peter list out. Um, this is here to undergird the, the, 
the understanding of the, of the apostles' role in Acts. They were primarily witnesses to Jesus, eyewitnesses who could share his teaching and also confirm the truth of his resurrection and the ascension. That's the qualify. It's a unique office, regardless of how some denominations may start their apostolic whatever. That's a unique office. The apostles were a unique office as it's used here by Luke. And we'll have to clarify that a little bit later because Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus, is a different character of apostle than these guys. It's a different type of use. Paul uses it looser, in a, in a looser way. And Luke will eventually. But right now he's talking about these guys who have been actual witnesses to the whole ministry of Jesus, which Paul was not, and the ascension and resurrection, which Paul had an appearance of Christ, but he was not there at the resurrection and ascension. So it's a little different. A little different. He's not the 13th apostle, in my view. Some people would differ with that. And it's not something I'm going to split the church over. But that's just what it is. It's just the right position. Okay. The, why? It's a joke. The, why? Why was this role limited to the 12? Why was it limited to the 12? Um, it's unique and irreplaceable office. There could be no apostolic succession. There could be no apostolic succession because nobody after them is going to have the same kind of qualifications. Second generation is not going to have this, right? The succession of the apostles is what we have here. That's the succession. Um, all right. James was not replaced after his martyrdom. We'll see him being killed not too long, not many days hence. Um, Judas had to be replaced because he forsook the office by his betrayal. It wasn't his death. It was his betrayal that made his office vacant. Because all of them are going to die. Um, except John. James, because he's still alive somewhere in the... I'm kidding. It's not true. They also uh, haven't started yet. They haven't received the Holy Spirit. Well, yes, but, the, but, but they have the office right, right now. Yeah. yeah. James continued to be considered an apostle even after his death. All right. Um, okay. i got to move quickly here. We're running up on time. Look at how they describe Judas in the prayer. How does, how does he say Judas came to his end? What, is it, what do they say? He turned aside to go to his own place. What a gentle way to put that. Uh, Judas, who's now burning for eternity in hell, <laughs> I don't say that. Uh, Judas, who, and even in the prayer, who, who died such a horrible and unworthy and, uh, and dishonoring death, they didn't say that. He went aside to his own place. Recognizing he's not part of us. He was never really part of us. He went out from us because he was never of us, right? And yet, they're very tender with that. It's not this thumping, you know, prideful thing. They say this with great humility. He, he went to his own place. Oh, I think so. I absolutely think so. It could have been any one of them. And I, and I think that that humility in, in recognizing the sovereignty of God here, uh, character, it shows in their language, how they, how they speak about it. Um, incidentally, there's 12. They needed 12. There are 120. Luke brings out there's 120 in the room. Just kind of a historical note. 120 is the, is the, is the minimum number that you need to constitute a ruling Sanhedrin body in Israel. You need one man for every ten men. Not directly related here because there's also women included, you know, so it's not Israel for Israel thing. But the, the idea is there of a ruling body uh, based, on, based on their understanding. All right. And so they pray. And then what do they do? They have these two guys. They pray over them. Another qualification is probably the sincerity of heart that he prays. And then what happens? What do they do? They cast lots. They play poker. What is going on with this? 
We've just prayed about the sovereignty of God. Why are we doing games of chance? Because they believe God could because they believe God could influence chance, it's still Old Testament understanding, isn't it? Isn't that how they did the Old Testament? The, the priests would throw, is it um and thumum? I always get the UT, we say. Um, they would still throw that stuff. It's still an understanding of every lap, lot that falls in the lap is from the hand of God, Proverbs says. They're operating under that. We never see this again after Pentecost. Why? Because they have the Holy Spirit. He will bring to your remembrance all things. Uh, if you ask God for wisdom, He ain't stingy with it. They never do this again. All right. They also look and they, you know, they didn't just cast lots and pick somebody from random. They presented people that were qualified and had gone through and they made sure, okay, both of these people are qualified for the position. It's up to you, God. Right. Which one do you want? Right. It was a net neutral between the two. Yeah. Right? They had done the hard work of figuring out who would fit the qualifications. They did their part. They were faithful to do that. And then the ultimate decision they left to the Lord this way. And the way that they knew at the time uh, through, through the casting of lots. And the idea there is that they had marked stones. And whichever stone came out first, that was the guy. Just in case you ever want to play a game Saturday night, that that's the way that works. Um, also, kind of yep. an unbiased decision. You know, it could be a group of people like, oh, I kind of favor this guy a little bit more. Versus. Yeah. By the way, they named the guys. Who would you think would be normally considered as the one to go for? Seven names. Yeah. No kidding. I mean, this is guys. And Matthias. <laughs> and Matthias. Yeah. God, again, God chooses differently than we would many times. All right. Um, two huge statements on sovereignty in the story of Judas and the choosing of Matthias. However, they are introduced by the humble human action of prayer and also sovereignly decreed. Of all people within the camp of Christianity, those under the Reformed tent should be people of prayer. Prayer has to do with nothing less than the purpose of the universe. And next week, what I'd like to do is talk about the purpose of the universe, answer the big why question, and how prayer fits into that. I think it's helpful to us from time to time to pause and talk about how do we do this? We talk about prayer. What does that look like? How do we pray? What is biblical prayer? And so next week, we're going to talk about the purpose of the universe and how we pray. Is that fair? I'll give you a hint. Uh, the words lead, guide, and direct us should not be in... Uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> lead, guide, and direct us. Lead, guide, and... Uh, anyway, there's an there's a old... Anyway, well, I'll talk about it next week. Um, next week. Not that we don't want No, we do want God to lead, guide, and direct us. <laughs> but we don't want to do vain repetition as the heathen do. Um, so there's that. Uh, so next week, we'll talk about the theology of prayer and how we, how we do it. And, and I'm going to pull a lot from Martin Luther writing to his barber. It's a good, it's a good book. So, all right. Any questions? I know I, 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 I went rapid fire, fire hose kind of deal this morning. Any questions? So just to clarify, the, we have established that the, the James and the Judas of the apostles were not James and Jude the brothers. The brothers who wrote right. the letters. Right. Okay. No, they were actually James we'll see in Acts is becomes the, the brother of Jesus is the, the head elder in Jerusalem for the Jerusalem church. He's the one that, that writes the letter, the whole thing. Right. And then uh, church tradition or history, Eusebius I think says this, uh, that Jude, once James dies, Jude takes over that that position as well in Jerusalem. But those are, those are both non-apostles, because the apostles are out, right? Plus James and Jude, the brothers, were not a part of Jesus' ministry. Right, right. They're, they weren't counted among the twelve. They were, they were leaders in the church, but they weren't counted among the twelve. Yeah. Where was it um, in the gospel where Jesus said, greater things than these you will do? Is it John? I'm, I'm, I'm not. I think it's in John. 
Wouldn't this be an example of yes, that? Yes, it's in John. To yep. where, you know, where he said, you know, the first few verses he says, you know, you'll go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. Mm-hmm. Isn't that kind of the fulfillment of that? Why? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think and, it's um, certainly the, the call the to that. The spreading of it yeah. is, um, makes you think. It does. I hope. I hope. All right, anything else? We still got 10 minutes. It's not 10:25 yet. So, yes, yes. Oh, a hand. Okay. Yes. I'm going to um I mean, it's pretty classic, but I still don't understand how like God controls everything, but we still have free will. Aha, uh-huh. interesting. Mm-hmm. So have what? Stuff free will. And and that is a great conversation. Uh <laughs> One minute answer. Um I don't make an enemy of friends. Uh, God is sovereign, and we're responsible to act. Um, yes. Earlier, you said that Jesus portrays the greatest fail in history. Uh-huh. If you felt uh, fair to say that the greatest fail in history began in the Garden of Eden. Um. Okay. No. <laughs> I, I think I think Judas uh, edges out Adam for that dignified title. <laughs> Because you have the Son of God right in front of you there. They were deceived. He wasn't deceived. He just did it. So, yeah, I think, I think, I think he edges Adam out on that. But, I mean, I'm willing to, I'm, I'm willing to hear the argument. I don't think he gets a medal. Uh, but but I, I just, when he's right there, you know. Your Venn diagram. Can we do it after? Because okay. I gotta let people go. People gotta yeah. play and stuff. All right, let's let's pray. Because that's the whole purpose of the universe. I mean, that has in it the whole. Okay, never mind. <laughs> what an awesome privilege we have, Father, that you've given us in Christ to come before you in petitioning our needs, uh, but most importantly. In doing the will of God right here, our thankfulness to you. I was reminded again this week of how quickly my whole demeanor changes with little bitty gifts that you give that meet needs. And yet how much more have you met the need that I have of your mercy through Christ? Shouldn't that transform me all the time? So Father, thank you for the privilege of prayer that we can that we can come to you and see the contents of our own heart as we pour out our hearts to you. That every word is um, expressive of what the battle is going on in the heart and and you're there, Father, Son, and Spirit, in the working through us in prayer. God, would you make us people of prayer? Recognizing your sovereignty, recognizing your control of the universe, recognizing that all things happen according to the counsel of your own will, and yet you've called us to ask you for them. Even though we know it's going to happen, you've called us to, to humble ourselves and pray. Would you make us, of all people, those who breathe the, the, the majestic air of sovereign grace, make us people of prayer. And I pray that it would start in this group. All great revivals start with young adults praying. Would you make it so here? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And if anyone's visiting and wants to be put on our email list so you'll know what's going on, just contact me or Kevin.